Coming up on this week in computer hardware, will coronavirus delay the next-gen iPhone? More details on the Xbox Series X, 12-gig memory, and AMD's 5600 XT, and how much will it really cost to roll out 5G everywhere? All that and more coming up next on Twitch. This Week in Computer Hardware is brought to you from LastPass Studios. Using the same password everywhere is a security nightmare waiting to happen. LastPass easily creates unique passwords for every site. Visit lastpass.com slash twit. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 555, recorded on February 27th, 2020. Coronavirus, HyperX, and Qi Charging. Welcome to Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, Twitch weekly show that aims to bring you not just family news, but news about hardware families. Actually, we talk about hardware here. We're going to talk about phones. We're going to talk about, well, graphics. We always talk about graphics. It's a bad day on Twitch when we can't talk about graphics. Sebastian? Is it a bad Patrick. day on Twitch we can't talk about graphics? Of course. Sir? And if we can't talk about current graphics, we can either A, make something up, or B, talk about vintage graphics, which we could you know, devote an entire show to if we wanted to. An entire show. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk for a moment. Coronavirus, obviously, in the news everywhere. Um, uh, especially uh, people pointing out, like at the CDC, um, that regular flu annually kills tens of thousands more people but doesn't gather the attention but um the hype monstering aside there is incredible concerns it is uh a mess in china uh no disrespect to the chinese government or medical system it's just a lot of people uh contracting coronavirus uh you know microsoft decided they they are not going to attend game developers conference but will do video presentations instead for example which is a big deal given that they are launching a new console later this year um interesting article on reuters uh in the sort of you know buzzword tagline uh but essentially uh steven ellis uh nimu lee uh they're basically this is the time of year when Apple's engineers usually go to China to final out finalize the details uh, or hammer out the problems of the next generation iPhone uh, and then they actually start producing the phones in high volume to quote a phrase uh, in the summer and uh, you know uh, I'm going to quote the article from Reuters. Quote, they probably have one assembly line they're trying things out on. So one of the former employees who asked not to be named discussing production matters. Uh, you know, are Apple's engineers with Voxcan engineers? If they are, they're probably making progress. But if they're not, they're quarantined. That could be bad. Because the idea here is that um, whether or not, you know, this is this is expanding. Wired did a huge article um, Basically discussing whether or not uh, shutdowns based on the coronavirus, uh, you know, quarantines and other things, if those will actually stem the availability or shut down the availability of various and sundry products, dot, 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 which is to say the vast majority of what is purchased in the United States in any given day. Um, it's an interesting thought. Uh, part of it might be, well, if you're thinking about buying something, buy it now. And part of it might be. Things might be delayed everywhere, but we don't know. Um, but it's been interesting to watch uh, as the tech publications have started to really get more in-depth of how coronavirus is impacting things other than trade shows that are going on right now. So something to think about. 
um, hopefully this thing will sort of stem and and recede but if not uh it could get pretty gnarly in terms of supply chains and availability uh, not just on high-end consumer electronics but on things like you know hammers that are made overseas um really interesting uh write-up uh Dieter Verge over the Dieter Bond over at the Verge got uh well he's basically finished up his Galaxy S20 review uh uh it's interesting to to watch his the the sort of sub tags on this Galaxy S20 Ultra Review, something to prove. Samsung Galaxy S20 Ultra Review, Shutterbug, uh, a new generation camera with first generation problems. Um, not just that, it's just 1400 is a staggering amount of money for a phone. Um, you, if you're watching the video, the camera unit just scrolled by. There's like, it, you know, it, it looks like the front of a some sort of Gundam, right? There's what looks like two cameras, two lights. It's just this big, massive bubble. This is a big phone. It's a 6.9-inch screen. It's actually physically bigger than an iPhone 11 Pro Max, which is a big delete expletive phone. Um, it looks massive compared to a Pixel 4 XL. Um, you know, it's uh, that camera module um, actually, well, I'm going to, quote Mr. Bond here again. Uh, unfortunately, Samsung couldn't restrain itself from printing Space Zoom 100X, uh, commenting to that block of camera sensors and flashes on the back. Um, if you I mean, if you look at the video, this is a big phone, right? The One of the pictures that uh, The Verge shows has you know the the iPhone 11 and the the Pixel 4 and the Samsung next to each other, and you know this is. I, I, let me say it one last time, and then I'll stop saying it again. This is a big phone. This is a biscuit under the size of a tablet. Um, you know, 120 refresh rate on that. Um, you know, and uh, it's funny. Um, you know, it's 60 hertz out of the box. Uh, you can set it to 120 hertz. It stays there. Um, you get about a 10% hit on battery life, which is a, a bit less than I thought. Um, yeah. You know, but, uh, you know, the thing that, that uh, Mr. Bond and other reviewers have said is, is, I'll quote again, it makes the experience of using Android so much better and smoother. I couldn't bring myself to turn it off. Um, you know, it offers 4K and 8K video. Uh, on the cameras, millimeter wave 5G, if you can actually get to it. Um, this is a phone that will suck down uh, uh, battery life. And, uh, you know, the Snapdragon X65, which doesn't have an integrated modem, uh, people are curious about exactly how much impact not having an integrated modem is going to uh, uh, hit this year's generation or this generation of flagship phones because traditionally having the modem integrated on the chipset has offered some battery savings opportunities. Um, so they literally threw a 5,000 milliamp hour battery onto this phone. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, it's an interesting choice. Um, yeah. The camera system is new. Uh, five cameras. Uh, quote, oh, if you five. count the depth sensor on the back. Okay. Uh, 40 megapixels on the on the 40 megapixels on the selfie camera, 48 megapixels on the telephoto lens, 108 megapixels on the main wide angle camera, uh, and then there's an ultra wide camera that does uh, 12 megapixels. Um, you know, this is 
interesting uh, because these are ridiculous pixel counts uh, and oh, yeah. for the most part, completely unnecessary and no sign that this is a great camera. Um, but uh, what they have done um, is that they've made the sensors larger than we've seen in the past and they are quote pixel binning and then they take smaller pixels and group them together so that they function actually as a bigger pixel and uh you know so quote by default the 108 megapixel sensor outputs 12 megapixel images um and they call it non-binning uh and they do that on the sensor hardware um unfortunately the results are mixed and uh and when I say mixed, I probably mean problematic. <laughs> um, you know, you know, better than Samsung's done in the past with night photography. Not as good as the Pixel 4's night sight mode. Um, you know, good for outdoor photography. Um, you know, pretty good with outdoors as long as it wasn't too super dark. Um, color tuning's a little. Uh, warmer and yellower than uh, Mr. Bond prefers, but that's, again, it's kind of a subjective choice. Um, it's pretty wild, right? Um, the S20 Ultra has the telephoto lens as a, a folded lens, and the idea is that the light hits a prism and then gets bounced around before it actually makes it to the sensor. And uh, true optical zoom up to 4X, and Mr. Bond reports that the actual zoom was pretty good up to 100X, um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, a little bit higher in zoom than the pixel, well, a lot higher if you go to hundred X, but 10 X seems to be kind of about as good as it goes, right? Quote by 30 X, they look process and phone line phone like, and at hundred X, uh, this is kind of cruel. The images are a splotchy mess. It's good mainly as a party trick. So... <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, uh, if you've got you know, the hundred, you might as well use it. Yeah, the hundred may have been a bad choice, though. Um, going all the way to a hundred, uh, really amazing selfie camera, though. Um, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting, uh, uh, interesting. It's an interesting phone. Um, it's flag. You know. I am curious to see how sales are on this one because uh, this is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly big. Um, you know, uh, the S20 line is the first real lineup from any manufacturer team that is all 5G. Um, you know, this is uh, <laughs> one of the interesting things that's funny uh, is, you know, ATT 5G should work on this phone, but it hadn't been certified as of Mr. Bond's testing on that. Um, but, uh, you know, the speeds are excellent if you actually have access to 5G. Uh, and uh, in Mr. Bond's testing, battery life wasn't too bad. Um, but much like us, uh, we think 5G is a terrible reason to buy a phone right now. So it's... Uh, <sighs> There are a it's, couple of uh, quick takes on this, if yeah. I may. One, you mentioned it's bigger than an iPhone 11 Pro yeah. Max, which it is. I was just looking at specs. It's longer. Uh, it's 6.57 inches tall, just about 3 inches wide. It's 2.99 inches wide and 0.35 inches thick. 
I don't know if they're measuring the bump or if that's just the overall like device thickness because, of course, the camera sticks out quite a bit. But here's the interesting thing. It's 220 mm-hmm. grams. It's 7.76 ounces. An iPhone 11 Pro Max, slightly smaller body, 6.22 inches tall, almost the same width, a little bit thinner, but it's heavier. It's two, 226 grams, almost 8 ounces. And I think the real difference is they both have a Gorilla Glass front and back, but the mm-hmm. iPhone has a stainless steel frame, and this Samsung phone is using aluminum. It does lower the weight down noticeably, 20-something grams lighter. Let's see here. Yeah, well, not much. It's it's a few grams lighter. It's like six grams lighter. But I'm, I'm just wondering if the additional height of the phone, coupled with the fact that it's just using an aluminum frame, will make this easy to bend. We could be back to that original iPhone. Uh, what was the original? The Plus. The iPhone 6 Plus that was rather right. easy to bend if you left it in your back pocket. The other thing I was thinking of, because you're talking a lot about the camera, I don't know if anybody listening or watching remembers, but uh, in the past, years ago, the mm-hmm. my favorite phone reviewer was, uh, uh, he worked for Anon Tech, actually, and he worked directly with Anon at all the Apple events and stuff. His name was Brian Klug, and right. by trade, he was an optical engineer. He ends up, he works at Apple now. We never hear from him anymore. But he <laughs> used to talk a lot, not about the actual megapixel rating of a sensor, but he talked about the the micron, like the actual pixel size. He talked sure. about what the useful size of a pixel is, which I want to say was somewhere pretty far north of one, like 1.5, something like that. And he, he it, I feel like it was his influence. After he went to Apple, suddenly they come out with a new camera lens that emphasized pixel size over pixel count. They kind of were stuck under 16 megapixels for a long time with the main sensor. Um, but looking at the pixel size of this Samsung phone, and I'm hearing things like uh, hunting for focus, soft focus on faces, that sort of thing. These are problems you can have when you have distortion at the pixel level. And this is right. a point, point 0.8 micron pixel size on that 108 meg- megapixel sensor. The only one that actually has a good pixel size is that 12 megapixel ultra wide. And behind that lens is a 1.4 micron uh, 12 megapixel sensor. So much larger pixels. And if you look over at the iPhone 11 specs, their primary shooter is only 12 megapixels. They're still stuck in that sub 16 megapixel world, but they're 1.4 micron on the main sensor. So I would like to see ultra-wide compared directly between the iPhone and the Samsung Galaxy uh, S20 Ultra just because they're similar enough in pixel size that we'd have a better quality comparison. But this is the problem with stuffing that many megapixels into a smartphone package. You start to end up with pictures that look like they came from a smartphone because that was always the really big difference between a professional camera with a maybe a full-frame sensor, maybe not even a full-frame sensor, but DSLRs and even point-and-shoot cameras tend to have much larger pixels, and they can handle light better without distortion. So I I don't know why Samsung would have to go up to 108 megapixels when their primary uh, competitor is Apple, and Apple is at 12. So how about 24? And with really big pixels, that would be amazing. <laughs> Give me two micron pixels at 24 megapixels. I will blow you away with the photos I can take with that camera. 
put one giant lens on the back. Forget having five sensors back there. <laughs> but hey, that's just me. And in fact, Samsung has done that. I can't remember the name of it, but they have a camera that's like a phone, but it's like this $500 internet connected point and shoot basically with a huge sensor on it. But, you know, I don't work for Samsung. They don't listen to me. I'm just, I'm worried about it bending mainly. Yeah, it's not a back pocket friendly uh but not a back where else are you going to put it? It's, it's like seven inches tall. <laughs> who's going to put this in their front pocket? You wouldn't be able to walk. Two it's people limping around like, pockets? oh, he's got, you got the new Samsung? Okay. He's like <laughs> jerkily walking along as if one like won't bend anymore. It goes halfway down to your knee. Well, that's just an interesting mental image. Changing the subject. Uh, speaking of 5G, um, <laughs> I just don't know where to go with that because um, I'm about to make a joke I don't want to make on a family-friendly podcast. Um, the uh, uh, McKinsey and Company uh, uh, did a report talking about uh, the cost of taking 5G global. Um, low to mid-band 5G will reach 80% of the world's population by 2030 and cost 400 to $500 billion to deploy. High bandwidth 5G will cover roughly 25% of the world's population and cost $700 billion to $900 billion. Now, you know, you may not care about uh, global, um, you know, availability on 5G, but uh, it is something to think about. Um and remember, the cool 5G is basically not going to be in most of the world or most of the United States for that matter. Uh, I was also surprised to find out this week that uh, Intel's not entirely out of 5G. Uh, they're still making products for the carrier slash enterprise side of things, uh, primarily three chips uh, that they have custom built or designed for 5G computers, plus a, quote, 5G-optimized network adapter for PCs. I know how much you were worrying about 5G Nick availability on PCs <laughs> or servers. We were talking about that last night on the PC per podcast. Like uh, Intel had talked yeah. about like a new portfolio of 5G stuff, like on the server side. Yeah. Why do we need 5G enabled servers? Maybe it's 5G to control like 5G infrastructure stuff. But I just, anytime PC and 5G come together, I kind of freak out a little bit. But then again, there's at least one 5G connected television as well. So, Hey, I guess that kind of makes sense if you were out in a rural area and you needed, you know, your and you actually TV. had. Well, okay, yeah. so there's a couple things going on there. One of them yeah. was a Xeon uh, processor um, that has quote additional AI capabilities to aid for inference applications, uh, and uh, so basically they're talking about. You know, inference being the sort of type of AI that's used when you talk to devices. Um, the only CPU with AI built in, uh, which I'm not entirely sure uh, is legit, um, but they're talking about uh, deep uh, integrated deep learning acceleration. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know. It's a curious announcement. Uh, the Atom P5900. Uh, which is supposed to be the uh, first Intel architecture system on a chip for base stations. 
uh, designed for the ground up for radio access RAN needs. A 10 nanometer chip with hardware-based network acceleration features, including integrated packet processing, ultra-low latency, and a switch for inline cryptographic acceleration. Uh, up to 1.8 times the integer throughput versus an Atom C3000, plus 5.6 times the packet security throughput and 3.7 times the packet balancing throughput compared with software-based alternatives. Also, should point out, I'm quoting Jeremy Horowitz uh, over at VentureBeat.com um, directly in that paragraph. So it's that actually is kind of interesting. Um, we'll see uh, where that ends up with. Uh, it was the... Uh, the 5G optimized network adapter, the NICs, that kind of confused me. Um, but uh, turns out that'll be for industrial equipment, financial trading, emergency response, uh, video streaming, RAN, and that the idea is they offer, uh, quote, ultra-low latency and similarly precise timing requirements, 100 nanosecond phase accuracy for 5G network service synchronization. So um, one of the things we've talked about in the past is that Part of the goal of 5G is to put 5G in everything, everywhere at all times, and this might be part of that transition, mythical or not, uh, of 5G, its bandwidth and its availability. So, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not waiting with bated breath, but we will see. Um, Rumors are heating up that uh, the next ARM Mac, or the next Mac, or the first ARM Mac, we should say, um, no Intel processor, is going to happen in the next 18 months, which I got to be honest is farther out than I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Sebastian I mean, I speechless. <laughs> I'm just thinking because obviously they've, it, it reminds me of go back to pre 2006 when Apple was right. still on power PC and there had been a PowerBook G4 for a long time. And there was all this rumor and speculation and hype about a PowerBook G5, something faster. And it never happened. And they were not, Apple internally was not happy with IBM, I assume, because they just could not produce the next more powerful, power efficient processor that they needed for laptops. It just didn't work. I'm sure they had prototyped it and it was thermally uh, unviable, if that's a word. Right. And um, and we saw back then the desktop side, the Power Mac G5 was uh, alarming. It got so hot, even with loud fans. It was ridiculous. And the way they tried to thermal manage them, and they were the liquid-cooled versions. But moving to Intel got them where they needed to be, especially on the mobile side. And I, I wonder how much the delays on Intel's side, where Apple's probably had this in their back pocket since 2007. If you think about it, the iPhone's sure. development, they had ported iOS to ARM before we ever saw an iPhone. Back in 2005, when they were still working on... Or, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was 2005. Internally, they were working on what became the iPad later on, but then they later changed the project from a tablet to a phone, and they were using a modified version of OS X on that initial tablet project. I I just feel like this is going to be like when Steve Jobs came on stage with Paul Odellini and announced that Intel was going to be inside of Macs, and he said... By the way, we've secretly had Macs running on Intel processors for years, since the beginning of <laughs> OS X, actually. And people were stunned. I, this is going to be the same thing. It's going to be like Tim Cook comes right. up on stage, and we've had Macs running on ARM since 2005. We were developing the iPhone. People are shocked. So if, if Intel didn't deliver on 10 nanometer like they were scheduled to, I'm sure Apple gets roadmaps we've never seen. 
right. about, you know, because they've closely partnered with Intel for many years, obviously. that It's Intel exclusive across the entire Apple lineup, desktop and laptop. So it, it makes sense to me that they their, their processors have been getting so fast, especially with the iPad Pro. That's kind of like that that device that bridges the gap between a tablet and a laptop. And you, you pair an iPad Pro up with a keyboard. There's a lot of things you can do on that that, you know, they're, that are laptop level at this point. So give that even more power in a traditional laptop uh, form factor. And I feel like I don't know if, if, if there's any negative to this at all. If they have all of their own apps optimized to run on this. And it won't be like the Windows world where... Windows versions have come out that run on ARM, and then there's very limited application support. Let's face it, if you're running a Mac, you face limited application support every day anyway, compared to the Windows ecosystem. (laughs) And if you like Apple apps, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but if you like Apple apps, if you like pages, and you like numbers, and Keynote, and you use Safari as your browser, and blah, 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 what difference does it make if there's a super efficient Apple ARM-based processor in there giving you tons of extra battery life and highly optimized, just like we would see with an iPad? Sure. I, I think this, the only question I have is, is this going to be a convertible device that will also kind of double as an iPad Pro with like a 360 hinge, something like we've seen? It'll be with, folding. You think so? No. I, I think just... it would need to be. Well, right, fold clothes <laughs> like a laptop, I guess. You know, what if we put a hinge on a laptop, Patrick? That would solve mm-hmm. everything. But crazy. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's my rant about this. I read this story the other day and I was just thinking, <laughs> of course, of course they've had Mac OS running on ARM because that's what iPhone was. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I you know it's it's it seems obvious. Uh, I I I honestly thought it was going to be sooner rather than later on that. But uh, uh, the other thing it uh, has been going on. Uh, we mentioned before that uh, uh, Microsoft will not be at GDC Game Developers Conference because of coronavirus concerns. They will be sort of streaming and doing videos on that. Um, they've also been revealing more of the Xbox Series Ten details. Um, like 12 teraflops of GPU performance, quote, up 2x from the Xbox One X, uh, support for 8K gaming. And what sounds most exciting to me on some levels is support for Brace for Impact, a quick resume feature. (laughs) Um, Now, 12 teraflops, how does that compare in terms of what I might be buying off the shelf GPU-wise for my desktop, sir? Okay, this is a tricky one, and this is something we were discussing a lot last night, actually, here. They don't specify whether that's half precision or full precision. Let's get really nerdy. The nerd scale is going way, way over because there's something called FP16, which is half precision, and then there's FP32, which is full precision, and there's FP64, which is double precision. And when we talk about GPUs on desktop, Generally, we're talking about full precision, right. so FP32. Uh, consoles, especially, I, I know it was uh, probably most recently discussed at length when the Nintendo Switch was rumored and then launched, because Nintendo was advertising a pretty high teraflop number. Turns mm-hmm. out they were actually counting FP16, which is double what you'll get with full precision. It's half precision. So they were using an Intel, or not Intel, uh, uh, NVIDIA. It's the only console that has NVIDIA in it. 
solution. It's like a Tegra X1 modified. And that's how they got to the count. I can't remember if it was nine or what the teraflop count was. But uh, here's the thing. The PS4 Pro, I believe, is somewhere in the nine, nine and a half teraflop range, FP16. This 12 teraflop, if you look at desktop, and this is an AMD solution, so this is AMD graphics. It's going to be RDNA or RDNA2 architecture. We currently mm-hmm. have RDNA with the RX 56, well, 55, 56, and 5700 series. A RX 5500 XT, if we're talking about FP16 teraflops, is something like 9, and then you go up to... A 5600 XT, and I think you're at. Uh, I have to look this up again. It's somewhere in between the two. So this, if it's if it's FP16, it'll be between the graphics horsepower of a Radeon RX 5500 XT and a 5600 XT. So like a 5600 or a 5500 XTX plus Ultra Pro Max. You know, it's just it'll be something faster than low to mid-range desktop into mid-range desktop. It doesn't really sound that exciting, really. If you look at what the PS4 Pro can currently do, it is faster than that. It'll be a big jump over the PS4 Pro, but it's not going to be like leapfrogging like a RTX 2080 Ti. 2080 Ti is like 14 teraflops, full precision. So double that for its FP16 number. I don't think... From what we've seen of the console, and of course not knowing what kind of power supply it has, I don't think that we're going to see this earth-shattering performance. Because honestly, if you read that 12 teraflop number and they were just talking full precision, that's huge. That's greater than RTX 2080 graphics in a small form factor for your living room. And you can definitely, and that's like 2080 Super, you can definitely 4K game in certain circumstances, certain quality levels with 12 teraflops. If it's FP16, this is where it's all about optimizations. They're already talking about variable rate shading. That's on the list. So that actually does improve performance because you're not giving the same detail to every pixel on the screen. Think of it as uh, with VR, we've talked about something in the past called foveated rendering where it's like field of view they made up a word fov so what you're looking at needs to what you would like the area of focus on the screen would be highly resolved and then everything off to the side can Mm -hmm. kind of fade and that's kind of that's a super it's an oversimplification of variable ray shading but it's the same concept where you don't need to make every pixel as good on the screen because you're only looking at one part so that'll help. And then the fact that always consoles tend to be ultra highly optimized down to the bare metal, unlike we see really with PCs where they're kind of dependent on how good the driver for that particular game is that comes out. Right. So th- I'm sure it'll still be really high performing. And it's even if it's FP16, it's still higher performance than a PS4 Pro. But I, I think it's a little early to say, oh, my God, 12 teraflops. This is amazing compared to, like, that's faster than a... I mean, we're, we're into, like, RX 5700 XT territory there. Like, eh, maybe. And that would be amazing. 
if if they've got an RDNA architecture that efficient, where it can fit into a smaller form factor, consume less power, and have right. the same horsepower as a 5700 XT, that would be great. But that that GPU pulls like 350 watts. Well, the total system. So it's it's like a 200 plus watt GPU, which is I don't know. I mean, the form factor of this console it looks ideally suited to a lot of heat dissipation because it's vented at the top. And the most recent mini ITX enclosure that I reviewed used what they call a stacked uh, thermal profile and all of the hot air escaped through the top. Similar kind of a thing. It was a right. similar kind of form factor to this and it worked really well. And you could put a, I have an uh, RTX 2080 Super in that thing and it was fine. So that was a very, very long answer. And, it was a good uh, answer, though. Yeah, I, I just see this. Answer. Yeah, I just think about when the Switch was announced, and there was there was a lot of talk about, oh, it's so much more powerful than the Wii U. And really, if you compared Wii U's FP16 capabilities with its ATI graphics versus what they were doing with the Switch, it wasn't a whole lot better. It was just better optimized. And I, I've gotten to the point now where I, I understand I've done side-by-sides, and I think the Switch does look better, even though it's technically... A, a hybrid console that's more portable than it is traditional mm-hmm. console, but it's just better optimized. And honestly, FP16 performance on NVIDIA is better. So we will, or it has been. So we'll see what uh, what we get with with AMD here and RDNA architecture. Hmm. There you have it, sir. Um, Man. Bethesda follows Activision and pulling games from NVIDIA's GeForce Now. Um, is GeForce Now in problem? Is, is it is it dead? Is it in is it suffering? Is it in trouble? Or is this just? Uh, I, I can't. I have feels about this, and I'm having difficulty articulating. <laughs> but I also feel like we got pretty in depth discussing the simple fact that game developers are learning from uh, television production houses or, or, you know, whatever, Disney, for example, CBS, where they would rather the money came directly to them rather than being filtered through steam. Um, As painful as it is for me to contemplate having to deal with, you know, 114 different, uh, managers on my system for various and sundry games uh but uh you know nick stat kind of a cruel quote not a great look for nvidia's cloud gaming service um i don't know i also feel like go ahead i was just gonna say here's the sad thing it's still it still looks better than stadia i mean even with (laughs) with activision blizzard leaving right after launch within a couple of days of launch like hey you're not authorized you're not authorized to have our stuff and then this looks bad because obviously another very high-profile developer, Bethesda, pulls out. But Stadia is still kind of uh, – our, our managing editor, Jim, who actually owns PC Per, uh, right. he just signed up for GeForce Now again. He'd done it back in the beta, but he's like, oh, see what it's all about. And he was kind of playing around with it and testing out latency because he has a new fiber connection to play with. And – then compares it to Stadia and is like Stadia is like a ghost town compared to GeForce now. So it's still a much more it's more alive. It's got more stuff and it's it's it seems to be a better Despite game. Despite the experience. reason okay. 
Yeah. I mean, uh, suppose, I mean, just one person's, uh, our managing editor's subjective view is that games look better on GeForce now with the same setup, same system, same internet connection. Stadia tends to look a little bit softer, a little bit blurrier. And so, I mean, the the hardware you're connecting to with GeForce now is different. Stadia is using a different sort of proprietary setup. It's, I think, like by the actual hardware, it's, it's like a custom variant of a Vega 56 GPU that you get access to. And mm-hmm. on GeForce side, obviously, you're you're getting GeForce graphics. It's a it's a higher end GPU. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe we, and we, I would have thought if anybody was ever going to succeed with with streaming, it was going to be Google because they just they would have the infrastructure to right. be closer to everybody and reduce latency issues. But it seems like they went more into the secret sauce technology of their proprietary controller and. At this point, it's really with either service, you get a better experience if you're playing games that are not twitchy games. You don't want to play competitively with a shooter with Stadia or GeForce Now right now. So I, I, I still struggle to understand the streaming market as it currently stands, uh, and I would love to be wrong. It's just it seems like right now it's a replacement for having dedicated hardware. And we're not just talking about a dedicated PC, a dedicated console as well. I personally don't understand why somebody who wants to game in their living room, I'm not talking about on the go. On the go is different. But if you're at home, if you don't want to buy into a PC, I get it. It's complicated and it you kind of, it's not for everybody. I love it. And I think a lot of our viewers and listeners love it. But PC hardware from scratch is kind of intimidating for a lot of people, especially younger people today. And getting a console is an easy solution. And a lot of games are kind of console first now, and it makes sense. It's basically a PC anyway. You buy an Xbox or a PS5 or 4. But for streaming, it's not as good of an experience at home as it would be to just buy a console. So having access to a big library of games, that's appealing. But to me, it only really makes sense if you're primarily gaming on like a tablet with a Bluetooth controller or something. Because... We continue to see issues with these services from just a playability standpoint. And then these headlines don't help because it's major game developer pulls out. Well, you can definitely find those games on Steam or Epic or wherever they happen to be. But uh, I don't understand why anybody at home would not just buy a console rather than invest in one of these monthly services. Just me. Hey, we want to thank everybody for listening and supporting This Week in Computer Hardware. We really appreciate that you're out there. And we have more great shows from Twit we think you should be, well, aware of. We know you love. You can subscribe to them all. One of our newest podcasts, Smart Tech Today with Micah Sargent and Matthew Casanelli. They're going to help you make sense of devices in your life to see if they're worth it, to see if they're worth your time, much less your money, right? Because time you can't replace, money you might earn back. But either case, you just don't want to waste either one. Smart Tech Today is great for learning all about the Internet of Things, from the smart cars to smart refrigerators. New episodes are available every Monday. So subscribe to Smart Tech Today in your favorite podcatcher or visit our website at twit.tv slash stt. And thank you again for listening to This weekend Computer Hardware or watching, if you're watching right now. Um, <laughs> Sebastian and I had a funny 
conversation earlier this week about featureitis and whether or not adding features to something are well, you know, whether they're a necessary and wondrous addition to the product category or something they did because they want all of their existing, you know, users to buy it all over again or if they're even just plain ridiculous. Enter the HyperX Cloud Flight S wireless gaming headset with key charging. Um, HyperX has made some really good headsets and some some of, our, uh, some of the best affordable headsets out there uh, that do a really, really good job with audio. HyperX, uh, a couple of high-end headsets that left us kind of scratching our heads. Uh, where in this uh, continuum do we find the Cloud Flight S wireless gaming headset with key charging? Well, it, it lives in the continuum, but in a different dimension from our own. <laughs> Wow. Much like the Q continuum, the Qi or Qi continuum uh, has many dimensions. What's interesting <laughs> about this, there's a couple things going on here. And as Patrick alluded to, HyperX makes really good stuff. It's not terribly expensive. It depends. I mean, they have a huge lineup of gaming accessories. But I've tested a few of their, I think I can see three or four different boxes from HyperX sitting around here. So over the years, I've tested multiple headsets. And they had been very reluctant to get into wireless gaming headsets. I remember uh, on a web conference with them when they were first announcing the cloud flight, they talked about this. They didn't want to make any concessions. They didn't want to introduce latency or, or quality issues. So when they finally did it, they did it with the cloud flight, the original uh, 2.4 gigahertz, kind of your standard USB dongle setup. And because to them, it's, it's lower latency. They can do higher uh, bitrate audio. And with the cloud flight, I was expecting, you know, maybe some additional features, maybe throw in Bluetooth as an option if you want to use it with a phone. They have not done that. And that was kind of odd to me because the the selling point of this is apparently the wireless charging capability where literally your, I think it's the left ear cup, the outside of the left ear cup is a wireless uh, charging uh, system. Look I don't know, at is that. Is it the coil? If you're watching the video. Yeah, the, it's yeah, like if you're watching the video, you can see it's a strange sight to behold. If you have a wireless charging pad for your phone in your house and you want to charge these, you simply set them down on it. But you have to set them flat against the outside of the left ear cup. So then the entire headset is sort of suspended vertically with the other ear cup dangling above it. I found it to be a lot more stable if I collapsed it down to its smallest size first. And then it did not topple over even my really small, inexpensive, like $10 charging uh, pad that I got on Amazon. This is so. Good. Oh, hey, here we go. So, yeah, just similar to this. If you're watching the video, <laughs> this is what your headphones will be like. Uh, one of the things, and it works, it works fine. I was surprised. I'm, there's like magnets at play that kind of hold it in place against the charging coil. A uh, couple of things. One, in addition to the wireless charging built into the left ear cup, there's also four touch buttons, which I feel like they kind of buried the lead. They made it all about the wireless charging capability. There are four customizable soft touch buttons on the left ear cup that you can use their software to, to program whatever you want. So by default, it has like microphone mute um, as one of them. And then this thing where it's gaming versus chat balance, where it... Mm -hmm. I, it works through like the mixer and it lowers the the source audio from your game or something so you can hear your chat if you're chatting through Discord or 
or a similar chat app. So that's fine. That works as, as expected. And I liked being able to program the buttons to do whatever I wanted. So I could make like the top button volume up and the bottom button volume down. The front button I made like microphone mute, I think. So I played around with it, customized it. Um, kind of odd though, the software which you're tapping into to customize these does not have any kind of EQ options. You cannot equalize the sound. There were no custom sound fields or anything other than a simulated 7.1 surround effect, which wasn't great. So you can turn the 7.1 surround effect on and off and you can check a box that says auto-optimize that, if you're watching the video, it does just that. It optimizes for certain popular games like PUBG and Fortnite, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's a particular kind of sound, and if you want to tweak it, you cannot. So I mentioned this in the review. What I'd really like to see is them add just like an additional uh, tab to their Ingenuity software and let you do your own equalization because... right. There's a very different sound from these than previous HyperX headsets. I've always described their sound as like a, a smile EQ. Well, like you, you scoop out the mid-range and it makes the bass and treble more prominent. It's that softer sound that a lot of people like. But this one is the opposite. It's like enhanced mid-range. It's like a mid-range hump. And then treble is actually a little bit boosted too. So this is a... Low bass, high mid range, high trouble. Baseless kind of wonder. Yeah, That's and, funny. But, those the HyperX. Most of their basic headsets are fairly neutral, um, compared yeah. to some of the gaming headsets where it is a full like we jammed up the highs, we jammed up the lows. Um, emphasizing treble and de-emphasizing bass sounds like a losing proposition for a gaming headset. Right, because you're not. And they, they had used the word clarity multiple times. And I saw in their press release that it was calling out clarity. These have clarity. So, I mean, you definitely get clarity when you boost mid-range and treble. But because, you know, bass, this is a 50 millimeter driver. If it's really bass heavy, you can kind of muddy up the sound if you kind of emphasize those lower frequencies. And that's what the driver is having to do. And I I was all like nerded out fully with this review. Of course, it's audio stuff, which is my hobby anyway. So I was using a tone generator to figure out exactly what frequencies I could hear in the lower bass. And I was surprised because I went down to 20 hertz immediately and started that tone. It was nice and loud and controlled through those headphones. It's really just the mix. So, I mean, it would produce sound all the way down to 15 hertz. It didn't do it very well, but after 15, it just kind of cut off. But 20 hertz, really low bass, and a lot of bass and music mix is like, 60 to 100 hertz that lower range was not very loud compared to mid-range and treble so if you just had Hmm. access to equalization you can correct all this to your liking that was just odd to me that they don't have it in their own software so if you're using a music player that has an equalizer you can correct it but otherwise you're kind of stuck with a sound that's surprisingly bright without a lot of bass out of the box but you know, if you can EQ it, great. If they and I, in their defense, their software, which frustratingly for me anyway, is only available for the Microsoft Store. I don't know for how much longer. Uh, at least the latest version was only available in their store because they they finally brought back download links to the HyperX support site, but it was not current enough for me to be able to use this new headset with it. But that beta software does not seem finished, so maybe that'll get corrected. That was my feedback for them anyway, 
want to see EQ. Otherwise, they're talking about a $160 headset with a surround effect that I personally don't think is that great. It's not the best I've heard, but it's it's simulated. This is a two-channel, like a two-driver headset, so that's kind of a mixed bag. And then I really like the customization of the buttons on the outside of the left ear cup more than the wireless charging, which I don't know. How do you feel about that, Patrick? Like setting your headset down to charge it. Obviously, you can't use it while it's charging that way. But do you find that convenient? Do you have wireless chargers laying everywhere? I have uh, no wireless chargers in my life. Um, oh. And, yeah, uh, you know, I, I find I prefer devices that, you know, are either plugged in or, or I don't know. It, you know, it, it's it's given that I don't spend 24 hours a day at my desktop, uh, it probably wouldn't bother me that much, right? Uh, because you could set it down on the charger and then come back later when you're ready for it. Um uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people are kind of mixed about wireless charging. Some people love it. Uh, some people don't love it. Um, I think a lot of it depends on how you use things. You know, I know a lot of people who are super thrilled that they can, you know, I mean, Ikea, for example, makes a lamp that is a bedside lamp. Uh, and maybe that's their desktop lamp. and They can just put their phone down on that, you know, when they go to bed at night and everything's all charged up and happy for them. Um you know the some of the other i you know it's doesn't bother me i just literally haven't had any wireless charging devices period uh no phones uh, although i you know maybe my current iphone uh uh I, you know it just doesn't do a lot for me mostly because I, on some level as silly as this sounds given how many zillions of items are out there using wireless charging uh i'm just not a big fan of anything that induces more heat um, feel free to email twitch at twit.tv and make fun of me, uh, <laughs> which hey, is perfectly, if they get uh, warm. That's true. I use wireless charging. Uh, I have a couple of pads here in the house and that headset got a little warm when it was charging and phones tend to get yeah. a little warm, but, and I would say warmer than when just charging traditionally, but yeah, it occurs to yeah, me that I do actually have a phone that will charge an iPhone that'll charge with wireless charging. So maybe it's time for me to get a key charger. And uh, experiment with the joy of wireless charging. <laughs> you know what? While you were talking, I was just thinking about this. What a huge miss for me because I have this round wireless charger here. I could have just stuck it to my ear cup while I was reviewing those uh, the headset because it would. there's magnets. It would have stuck there. You can actually use those headphones while charging them wirelessly if you stick the wireless charger to your head. So and if I do a video mind. review... I will definitely explore this. I'll just do the whole review with the cheap charger, like <laughs> stuck to my face. Oh my goodness! Yeah, uh, words fail me. That's all I'm going to say. I'm also now looking on Amazon for the latest in uh, key chargers, and of course, the first one that shows up uh, is not actually a key charger. Ah, uh, goodness. Um. Hmm. Samsung T7 fast external SSD secured with a fingerprint. Did you uh, did you fall in love with this tiny, shiny, happy? Actually, I guess uh, Jim did the review on this. Did Jim fall in love with this tiny, shiny, happy portable SSD? I, I I talked to him about it. He didn't sound like he was in love. I mean, I think he was interested. I think they need to spend more time together to really find out. <laughs> they haven't used the L word yet. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. 
Um, it's it's fast though. <laughs> like think about the the previous generations of this. And actually, Alan might have been on the show when the T5 came out. That was the previous version. They went from T1 to T3 to T5 and now T7. So they've been doing odd numbers. And this is the latest generation of their small, portable, fast USB SSD. So it's this little device. Actually, by today's standards, it looks like a portable battery charger. But it's this little like aluminum enclosure, a little bit bigger in profile. Like the footprint is a little bit larger than a credit card. And it's like the thickness of like seven or eight credit cards stacked on top of each other. And it... Uh operates at very fast like the latest usb 3.2 gen 2 interface 10 gigabit it's not like by to 20 gigabit or anything but 10 gigabit it, they advertise speeds of up to 1050 megabytes per second and that's huge because previously they were limited by the sata interface so you weren't getting any more than 550 megabytes per second with the t5 and in fact the t3 right. which i bought on alan's recommendation back in the day that one, I think, tops out at like 400 megabytes per second. So they've gotten faster over the years, and this is no exception. They, they've started using like PCI Express-based storage internally instead of SATA. And mm-hmm. they're pretty much pushing the limits of what you can get from the 10 gigabit interface. And I know it's duck soup when it comes to... Not duck soup, alphabet soup? Some kind of soup when it comes to USB <laughs> standards anymore. That's kind of duck soup sure. because it's USB 3.1 and then it's, well, it's 3.1 Gen 2. And well, now it's 3.2 Gen 1 versus Gen 2, but not Gen 2 by 2, which is 20 megabit per se- or gigabit per second instead of 10 gigabit per second. So if you can figure out what standard you actually have, uh, unless you're using something with um, a very high end 2 by 2 or Thunderbolt connection, then... This is probably as fast as you're going to be able to support externally anyway. I have a very like right. a late model 2019 laptop, and it will only do, only do 10 gigabit per second, even from the Type-C port. So uh, this will pretty much push that as far as it can go, is my point. Because I think theoretically that interface can only go up to about 1.2 gigabytes per second. And this is just over one, between one and 1.1. So I'd be surprised if we saw stuff that was pushing much higher speeds than this. But it's it's a nice enclosure, and it the interesting thing about it is that it has security via an integrated fingerprint reader. So this is a Samsung device. Think about like the back of a Samsung phone that had a fingerprint reader, but that's the top of your drive. And you use their software sure. to register your fingerprint a bunch of times from different angles. And when, when it's done, you have this device that only you can access by tapping your finger on it. So that's that's nice. You could carry this around, not worry about losing it if you had some kind of, uh, you know, private data on there or, you know, financial records or something. So it would never fall into the wrong hands. It's hardware encryption. So a lot of these things rely on software encryption if, if you want encrypted data on them. Which was, you know, it's kind of a nice thing. It does add to the price, though. That's kind of the only drawback that Jim had about these when he reviewed them is it's a little mm-hmm. pricey. It's I think it's one twenty nine ninety nine for the smaller five hundred gigabyte model, and then it doubles almost doubles to two twenty nine ninety nine when you go up to the one terabyte, and then the two terabyte which is not available yet that's quite a bit more. You're up to four hundred dollars. So 
I mean, it's it's really fast. If you if you Google or just go on Amazon looking for professional grade portable SSDs that are that are just like direct connect with a single cable like this, uh, this is about as fast as you're going to find. Like one thousand megabytes per second. The last one I looked at was a Lexar Pro Drive, and those are nine hundred and fifty megabytes per second, and actually didn't quite. Hit. It came very close. It came close to hitting that when I tested it, but this is the fastest one that we've tested. And really, if if you value security, the built-in hardware security with the fingerprint reader, I don't think 229 is that outrageous for a like quote-unquote professional-level drive. It's just that sure. we would tend to roll our own, where I would buy like a NVMe enclosure on Amazon for like 30 or 40 bucks. They've actually gotten a lot cheaper recently, and then just buy my own one terabyte NVMe drive around 100 dollars. And then put those two together, and you're spending a lot less money than the Samsung. But, you know, those can be kind of hit or miss. And I will say the ones I've used, they get very hot. Those little NVMe enclosures. Almost as a rule. Yeah. And that was one of the things that Samsung said. They they put a lot into this particular enclosure for heat dissipation. It's an aluminum enclosure, but it's got a, a bigger heat pad, and it does kind of evenly disperse heat they claimed it would never get any warmer than i think they said 60 degrees uh jim never saw anything over 40 so a lot of it's going to depend on the environment yeah so just for that alone i mean it doesn't get super hot and it's got the built-in fingerprint reader if you want to use it so at that point 229 for one terabyte doesn't seem insane it's just a lot more than you get if you put one together yourself yeah, but you don't get a fingerprint like a you don't get the security on it, the fingerprint security, and you don't get the thermals. Um, True. Yes. And I, I think the thermals for me, I, I've I feel comfortably that I've uh, I've managed to kill at least one SSD uh, with a really poor enclosure. Um, you know that is anecdotal, not factual. There are any of number of things that could have killed that SSD, but I don't think the enclosure it was in was helping. Uh, it's interesting to think about. Why wait for the Xbox Series 10 when you can build a PC in a smaller, similar-ish, a similar-ish box now? Yeah. Uh, similar-ish. Ish. Not a bad-looking case. No, this is if you're brand in, new from sim- NZXT. I'm actually kind of jamming on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Okay, you know the N-Case M1? Well, no, not like that one. Uh, the Dan case, the A4. Or FX or is it SFX? You know the little Dan cases case, the crowdfunded. Yeah, yeah, it takes it's it's that form factor internally, but it's vertical. So just stand that up on its side, basically. That's the the idea, anyway. It's a little bit bigger than that, but it's a mini ITX build where you kind of sandwich the mini ITX motherboard and the GPU is kind of behind it, and there's a ribbon cable connecting mm-hmm. the two of them. What's interesting about this is it comes with not only a power supply, but a liquid cooler for the CPU. So you buy this Hmm. NZXC H1 case, which is roughly the same kind of form factor as the new Xbox Series X that we've seen teased. And stack your system together in there and use the built-in water cooler, which is, it's a tight fit, but it all works. You could put a full-size GPU in there. And it's a 13.6 liter volume. So higher volume than the Dan cases. I think the Dan cases is only around seven to eight liters. Uh, 
so you have a little bit more room in there. But uh, I think it was Tom's Hardware that I linked who's had an early review of this. And their build photos show you just kind of how tight everything is when you get it in there. Like your your liquid cooler pump is like a half inch away from the radiator when you close it all up. It's very, very kind of squished together. And thermals for the GPU were not great. And one of the things I realized looking at this, I kept thinking Xbox Series X until I realized the top isn't vented. So you've got your GPU where naturally the exhaust would point upwards because of where the I.O. panel is. But in fact, I believe this one is inverted. It's It points down. So the last one of these type cases that I reviewed uh, was the uh, Lucid Series LDO3, I think, from Silverstone. It's a stacked mm-hmm. thermal design like this kind of, but everything was going up and out the top. And with this one, the the power supplies at the top and the IO and everything points down at the bottom. So your GPU will be blowing hot air down to this like two inch tall gap at the bottom of the case and then out against your desktop. So that seems less than ideal. Thermals with the GPU were the issue with this uh, in the review. So my curiosity is I used a liquid cooled GPU for my last mini ITX build. It was this EVGA hybrid where they have a liquid cooler, 128 millimeter integrated into it. And there's space for 120 millimeter uh, all-in-one liquid cooler in this case, but they include the liquid cooler for your CPU. So you'd have to use a low profile uh, CPU cooler of some kind that was air. And then you could take up that space with a GPU liquid cooler. It's just, it would require some reconfiguring, I think, to make it a really good thermal performer. But it's interesting. Pricey, though. That's the other problem. It's $329 or $349 with uh, PSU and cooler included. Although I will say I, I like I like this enclosure a lot. It is my kind of enclosure, except for the thermal issues. Um, yeah. Hmm. I mean, look at pictures of it. <laughs> Judge for yourself. It's the H1. It just came out a couple days ago. It's cool looking. I just look at it and really wish they had done what Silverstone did was vent the top and not the bottom. Because then you have convection That's on your side. That's what drill presses have... are for. Oh, well, there's that. <laughs> but then you'd have to... Oh, you could do it. But at, at that point, why buy it? Just make your own case if you have the equipment to fabricate stuff. No, never do that. Well, there you Don't have listen it. to me. Just nail, screw everything to a piece of plywood. What was that... Uh, that die trying video you did with that four hundred dollar build, I had oh. I had done on a four hundred dollar computer build. You picked it up, which I was all excited about back in the day. I'm like Patrick Norton's got my build, and you had it on like a piece of plywood. Like, well, I mean that does we, yeah, save we, money. With a piece case. of plywood, we were laughing because we we uh, somebody we had gotten rid of a bunch of cases, I think, and we grabbed we basically strapped the motherboard and the cars. We uh, lashed the motherboard and the cars cards to a piece of plywood with uh with uh uh paracord (laughs) and then hung it off the wall of the cubicle with the paracord and as ridiculous as that sounds uh it actually worked really well so and had a certain je ne sais queasy to it but yeah exactly you know you don't need cases people just get a piece of plywood and a bunch of zip ties, or what was that stuff you you said? Power paracord. 
Oh, paracord. paracord. Oh. Uh, hold on. Do, 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 do. It's basically a, a thin form of rope. Oh, this is great. There's a whole on paracordplanet.com. There's a whole article on what paracord is, and I'll drop that into the rundown for you. Um, basically, it's a thin, high-performance nylon cord. Uh, oh, wow. It's great. There's pictures and everything in here. The uh, <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about paracord. Um, paracord, uh, your next PC case. Oh, actually, I hope it's by next week. I, I need to get this done soon. I have a just completely on topic actually i have a fabric <laughs> a fabric covered computer case to review the size really? of the case the fabric like the stuff fabric. that everybody uses for for internet of things devices now that sort of Kinda, gray I'm, I'm generic fabric bags. I've, got, I've got these two bags around here somewhere oh they're over here anyway i have it's it's weird because it's a plastic frame and it almost feels like the same material as like a milk cart or a yeah a milk crate would be and then it comes with two form-fitting fabric covers to slide over it. And that become that becomes the sides of the case. But air can pass through it, and I guess it doubles as a, fan of a, like a filter. It's strange. It's called the Alice, and it's from InWin. So I, I got one of these actually around CES time. I haven't finished the review yet, but it's... It's out there. It's unlike any other case. And we're thinking about like alternative, you know, it's it's not quite as extreme as plywood, but you're essentially screwing your motherboard into a crate and then wrapping it in yeah. cloth. It looks like an elongated milk box crate and then you stretch you stretch fabric over it. Yes. You sock it. Like yes. any of a number of speakers I could think of. That's hysterical. Yeah. Is it expensive? No, no. It's it's cheap. Because it's just it's a plastic oh, frame with cloth over the outside. So I, I, somewhere south they have of the orange or gray, exactly like sixty dollars. And then yeah. it's, when you're ready to make a change, you just sew up a different cloth cover for it. I dig right. it. Right. Or I you paint. <laughs> you get a, a plain one and you paint it. I think that was the thing. Like people can express their creativity right. and and do a painting <laughs> on the cloth canvas. Like your case becomes Could a literal canvas. Could you not be quite that sarcastic when you say, quote, express their creativity, unquote? Oh, I'm sorry. Was that evident? Okay. I mean, it look, was incredibly maybe, evident. Maybe at age 38, <laughs> I've become out of touch with youth culture. But I just think about, like, when my son is, you know, 14, if he's into art or something, like, scrawling some kind of, you know, neo-impressionist painting on the outside of his cloth computer case cover. <laughs> I guess I'll just be happy at that point that he uses a PC. You should. He can express himself all he wants. Maybe he'll use paracord. Type 3, 550-pound paracord to craft a magnificent, you know, sort of knitted cover for it. In any case, do paracord. Search for paracord projects later on. I think you'll be shocked, delighted, and slightly terrified. Um, Radiant RX 5600 XT with 12 gigabit per second memory. Do we care? Is it that much faster? Is it the best 5600 XT ever? Okay, we've, we've alluded to this, or at least I've alluded to this a lot recently as I was working on this project and after the RTX, or the RX 5600 XT launch happened. The reason this particular review was interesting, at least to me, is it's our first mm -hmm. hands-on look at what I call the 12 gigabit per second reality of that GPU. What would the launch have been like if AMD hadn't sprung a very last-minute uh, video BIOS update on everybody? where a lot of outlets had already completed their testing 
and you know had to retest because not only did the GPU speeds change, but at least for the cards that AMD provided, the memory speed also changed drastically. We it went from 288 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth up to 336 with just a BIOS update. So that's right. just insane. So uh, the performance was great, and it stacked up very well against the RTX 2060, which is what they were trying to do, because NVIDIA had just announced a, a lower-priced, well, they'd announced through EVGA, a lower-priced variant of the RTX 2060. So in this review, this is kind of like the originally revealed card. It's only 12 gigabit per second memory. It does have an overclock core, pretty significantly so. It's 1660 megahertz uh, game clock instead of like 1375, I think is what they had announced. So uh-huh. what does a really fast core overclock do without the memory increase? Very little. It turns out this card is very much memory bandwidth constrained. And so without the faster memory, it isn't all that fast compared to a like that stock uh product that was announced if it it, the the faster core clocks don't do nearly as much as the faster memory did so we're looking at charts where at 1080 i did all this new testing uh, on the latest drivers at 1080p it was still about the performance level of a vega 56 which for Mm -hmm. a, a gpu and unfortunately this for xfx and I feel bad for the partners that have released cards like this because we heard about like MSI, Asus, and now XFX having products where they said, you know, we're not going to increase the memory speed. We can't reliably, we can't support a product that's being overclocked that high on the memory 24-7. And this particular right. card has a three-year warranty. So I can see like they internally decide we can't validate this overclock for three years, so we're just not going to do it. And unfortunately... That puts them in a position where they look really bad on a chart compared to the Sapphire Pulse card that I uh, reviewed initially, which was only $289, has a massive overclock on the core and the memory. And then this product, which is the top of the line XFX card, their highest end SKU, it's their Thick 3 Ultra, and it doesn't come anywhere close to the performance, even at $329. So for any of the vendors out there who had already shipped cards that were sitting in warehouses with 12 gigabit per second memory, who had to make the decision, do I try to overclock this or not? And at this point, the only way that this card that I just finished reviewing would be competitive is if they lowered the price, which is sad because, you know, they're not going to do that. They would cut into their margins. They would actually have to revise the entire product stack to, you know, accommodate about a 20 or $30 reduction in price. The only bright spot from this look at an RX 5600 XT with 12 gigabit per second memory was, well, yeah, it consumed less power because the memory was consuming more power at a higher speed. But uh, this particular variant, anyway, extremely quiet. Uh, Under full load, it never even got to 33 decibels. So it was not audible. That's, That's impressive. Yeah, I'm in like somewhere in the 32 to 33 range is where my CPU or CPU cooler was at idle anyway. I couldn't hear the GPU under load over my idle CPU fan, if that makes any sense. Because the CPU fan barely ramps up when I'm doing game benchmarking. 
And it was just funny because I'm, I'm living in this world where the two combined are under 33 decibels. It was crazy quiet. The, the fan speeds were very low, though. They were around 1,200 RPM. So if you were to ramp up the fans, obviously the noise would go up, but the temps would go down. And that was one of the areas where this kind of uh, fell a little short because it was a 50, like delta temperatures, so like adjusted temperatures for room uh, ambient temperature. It was 50 C on the core after a couple of runs of a gaming benchmark and 62 C on the hot spot. And that did not compare all that well to the Sapphire Pulse, which was 41 on the core and 47 on the hot spot. So it, Hmm. A faster profile would be needed for this to have better thermals. And I almost wondered, we talked about this, I think, last week, like the PSI ratings of the screws on the backs of cards where Asus was doing a right. repair program for people. I kind of wonder if the same thing happened to XFX because uh, if I were to put some washers behind the screws back here and tighten this thing up a little bit more, I think I could improve the thermals. I didn't get that far into it with this review, but it's just one of those things. It's They have options and really this is one firmware update away from faster memory and a more aggressive fan profile and it'd be a totally different story so it's just amazing to me this launch has shown me how much firmware affects performance really like they they created almost a new card when they sent down bios updates that included 14 gigabit per second memory because with with some gpus we haven't seen that much of a benefit from memory overclocking because they're more gpu constrained And with these, they're only held back by the memory. So you, you can't give them enough memory bandwidth. So unfortunately, that's the story. If you're shopping for an RX 5600 XT, I would like only recommend it over an RTX 2060 if you're getting one with 14 gigabit per second memory. That seems fair, if disappointing. Oh, my goodness. Uh, if you're looking for a new power bank, a portable charger, uh, there's a pretty good sale going on from Anchor. They're one of the most reputable manufacturers of uh, portable batteries, um, and they're doing like 25 to 35% off. Um, one of the nicest ones they do is their uh, PowerCore Essential 20,000 PD USB-C portable charger. I could read the rest of the name off of the Amazon listing, but uh, it takes several days. Um it's down to like forty three ninety nine, and then there's a uh, coupon that they apply at checkout that takes down like thirty eight dollars ninety nine cents. That's a really good price for a very solid uh, twenty thousand milliamp uh, uh, twenty thousand milliamp uh, uh, USB C portable charger. It's got a USB C jack. It's got a USB A jack. Um, and uh, that uh, this battery size is kind of my preferred battery size because I'm paranoid and I want to be able to charge any of a number of devices when I travel, whether, for example, it's a Sony A6000 or to be able to charge my phone several times. Um, they also have a pretty good deal on their PowerCore Plus 26,800 milliamp hour, uh, 45 watts battery that has a 60 watt uh, PD charger, which means um, if you want to charge a USB-C laptop, a MacBook, uh, Dell XPS, uh, iPad Pro, any number of other devices, you will actually get uh, the wattage you need off of this to charge uh, your laptop. Um, 
you know, to put this in perspective, this is five or six charges on a flagship cell phone and basically a single additional charge for a MacBook Pro 13 or a Dell XPS. But uh, if you are desperate for the power, um, it is a pretty uh, pretty big deal. Um, the other thing that's kind of crazy is they have a charger that's bundled with it, their PowerPort Atom 3, which is a 60-watt charger, which will recharge the battery in 3.3 hours. Uh, and to put that in perspective, a regular 5-watt, you know, uh, 500 milliamp um, USB charger would take 30 hours to recharge this battery. Um, that's a much more expensive battery because they basically have to deal with the thermals of punching out that kind of wattage uh, over a USB-C cable. And uh, amongst other things, that's $119. Um, and then uh, you get another 10 there on sale from like 140 down to 119 and you get an extra 10 bucks off if you hit the checkbox for the coupon, which is hidden in the pricing details on Amazon.com. Um, but I've carried a couple Anchor, uh, several Anchor uh, portable batteries for the last few years, and uh, they have all been fairly flawless, uh, even the one that's been dropped a couple times. So uh, they're doing good work, and uh, it's a nice price on those should you need a massive amount of power in your backpack or your bug out kit or your car or your desk. Uh, you know, I gotta be honest with you, even if you don't think you need one, it's nice to have one for travel or if the lights go out and you want to keep your phone running so people can call you and make sure you're okay while you're sitting in the dark waiting for the heat to come back on. By the way, no low key, one of the best applications of one of these things, charging your PS4 controller without having to get up off the couch. You know, when they, they go low, it's got micro Ooh. USB on the back. And if you have one of those battery chargers, just plug it in, sit right back down on the couch, charge the controller while you play. This is the good. Yeah. Theoretically. I'm, theoretically. You could possibly. It is within the realm of possibilities, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. With that, you have been listening to This Week in Computer Hardware. We call it Twitch. It's a weekly show on twit.tv or twit.tv slash twitch would be the website where you can get all the latest news about hardware. Well, about hardware, mobile, laptop, desktop. Obviously, we enjoy a little bit of the console action and the internet of stuff. The gentleman for PCPer.com is known as Sebastian Peake. He's the editor-in-chief. I'm Patrick Norton. You can catch me each and every week here on This Week in Computer Hardware. And uh, we hope you join us. And if you haven't joined us before, if this is your first podcast with us, do us a favor. Search for This Week in Computer Hardware on your favorite podcatcher or go to twit.tv slash twitch and you'll find all of the information on how to subscribe. Uh, if you have a question for us, we'd love to answer it. Email twitch at twit.tv. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. And I'm Sebastian Peake. We'll catch you next week on Twitch. Twitch.